Take your seats and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. Today we're going to briefly look at verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 14. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that your son became flesh, that he took on human body, that he had hair and eyes and a nose and ears, that he had a clavicle, plural, that he had bones and tissue and blood and toenails, taste buds and elbows and a spleen. He was very much a human being. He was 100% a human being, and he was 100% God. And those two natures were united in your son, Father. He was just like we are in his humanity, except without sin. And that is what we hang our very life on, that your son was just like us, but he never sinned. And only someone like that could bridge the gap and the chasm that existed between a holy God and broken sinners like us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Now may your spirit open our eyes as we gaze upon him and think about him. May we live lives that glorify you here in our bodies, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't understand something, you won't value it. The Russian Red Army, which had invaded Germany in 1945, experienced this because it was composed of some uh, peasants who were unfamiliar with the amenities of modern-day life in Germany. One thing that mystified these soldiers was indoor plumbing. They had never seen a flushing toilet. Sometimes they would use the toilets to wash and peel potatoes. Since they could not find outhouses anywhere, they would leave excrement and urine all over the place. You see, a red soldier might stare at a German toilet, but he just didn't get it. He didn't understand the toilet, therefore he didn't value indoor plumbing. If you don't understand something, you won't value it. We will be spending the next several weeks discussing and looking at the importance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming a human being. Essentially, the sermons over the next few weeks will help us to explain what John 1.14 means when it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are going to be looking at the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. What does it mean that God took on human flesh? What does it mean that Jesus is fully God, 100% God, and that he is also fully man, 100% man, and those two natures are united together in one person? What does that mean? Why did Jesus have to become a human being like us? but be without sin in order to save us. What value 
is placed on human beings? What value is placed on your body because Jesus Christ became a human being? These are some of the questions that we'll answer and look at over the next few weeks as we look at the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we don't understand the gospel, then we won't value our bodies. Here's our big idea today. Salvation is very physical. Salvation, redemption, the gospel is very physical. When we think of salvation, many of us only think of it in spiritual terms. Yes, there is a spiritual element. That's true, and I am not denying it. But our salvation is very much physical. And we see that clearly in John 1.14 because it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took on flesh. When I say that Jesus took on flesh, I don't mean the sinful nature that we all have because we are all wrecked and ruined in our federal head, Adam. We are all messed up and broken because he sinned. I don't mean that Jesus has a sinful nature. What I mean is that Jesus took on flesh and blood, tissue, blood, bones, muscle, So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What it means that he became a human being. We're going to look at the church history and see how the church dealt with and understood John 1.14. So today, though, let's go back in time to 180 AD and let's look at one of the problems that had arisen in the church. Obviously, there were problems without the church. On the outside, there was persecution, there was suffering. But what were some of the problems that were happening inside the church? Let me introduce you to a pastor. His name is Irenaeus. He's the pastor of a church in Lyon, France. And he dealt with one of the heresies that was creeping into the church. He wrote several books countering this heresy called Gnosticism. In fact, Irenaeus wrote a five-volume set countering the heresy of Gnosticism, which was creeping into the church. Here's what Irenaeus said, alluding to Matthew 7, 15. These Gnostics are wolves in sheep's clothing. Such men are, to outward appearance, sheep. For they appear to be like us by what they say in public, repeating the same words as we do, but inwardly they are wolves They are those who mix up a poison and pass it off as a refreshing drink. Speaking of the false teachers called Gnostics who promoted Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnostics taught that salvation was based on a secret knowledge they were the only ones privy to. Very convenient, huh? Let me tell you how you can be saved. I'm the only one that has the answer. These people began popping up in Irenaeus' church and many others from Rome to France to Asia Minor. But you couldn't recognize a Gnostic just by looking at them, by what they wore, or even by what they said on the surface. Gnostics looked and talked just like Christians. 
they use the Bible. They had Christian vocabulary. They used words like grace and mercy and fellowship. And they probably even knew the Greek word koinonia for fellowship. And they were creeping into the church and spreading their heresies. So imagine this scene. You're a member of Irenaeus' church. You see a guy there who's been tending for a few weeks, and you strike, strike up a conversation over several weeks, and he finally says, hey, do you want to meet at Starbucks some morning? We can talk about the Lord, look at the Bible, drink some coffee. And so, you know, you go, because you want to do fellowship, right? So you're both sitting there drinking your venti caramel macchiatos, and he says to you, hey, man, how long have you been at Irenaeus' church? You like him? He's a good pastor? Well, listen, I've got to be honest with you. Irenaeus is not telling you everything. He's holding back and he's not presenting the whole truth. Let me explain. I know he talks about Jesus. I know he talks about the gospel a lot. I know he preaches from the Bible, but there's more. And here's what this Gnostic would have told you as he explained his theology and his beliefs as found in Gnosticism. He would have told you That there is one supreme God, the Father, who is spiritual and has nothing to do with this physical, material world. And because this God is so transcendent and spiritual and that he's not of this world, the Gnostic would tell you, you can't know him. He is completely unknown. He is out there, unknowable. In fact, the Gnostic would tell you, the Father's name is Bethus. Bethus in Greek means deep. He was saying, Bethus, the Father, is deep, he's profound, he's way out there, you cannot know him. And then the Gnostic could tell you that Bethus emits from himself these spiritual entities, these little gods, if you will, called aeons. And these spiritual entities were given names that sounded just like they came right out of the Bible. Some of their names were Christ, Logos, Jesus, Savior, Sophia, to name a few. And according to the Gnostics, one day, this spiritual entity called Sophia sinned by believing that she could get to know Bethus, the Father, the unknowable God. According to the Gnostics, Sophia had the audacity that, to think that she could know this otherworldly, unknowable, transcendent God. The nerve of Sophia, the Gnostic would say. And through this process of trying to know the unknowable God, Sophia gave birth to another spiritual being called the Demiurge. Where does this name come from? The Demiergos is the Greek. It means maker, creator, former, or framer. The Demiurge receives this name because according to the Gnostics, the Demiurge is the creator of this physical world as we know it. The Demiurge is a spiritual being who created this physical world. So you have God the Father, whose name is Bethus, according to the Gnostics, who emits forth from himself these entities. One of those entities named Sophia sinned by thinking she could know the unknowable God, and through the process of trying to know him, she gives birth to this God called the Demiurge, Sophia's son. And like all children, the Demiurge has characteristics of his mother. He inherited the faults of his mother. Sin, pride, arrogance, evil. And since the Demiurge created the physical world, since he was the creator of the physical world, this world is a world of sin, pride, arrogance, and evil. Now, none of you are buying this yet, right? But it was a problem in the church, so much so that Irenaeus had to write a five-volume set to counter this kind of teaching. 
But notice the contrast here in Gnosticism. The father is the spiritual, otherworldly God. We live in the physical, material world. Notice the contrast there. This is the key to understanding the heresy of Gnosticism as it was creeping into the churches in the second century. Gnosticism pushed and peddled what we understand as dualism. Dualism teaches that there are two completely opposed structures. Dualism is the belief that some things are positive and some things are negative. Dualism gives a good, positive value to some things and a bad, evil, negative value to other things. So in Gnosticism, the heavenly spiritual world where Bethus the father was, that's, that's the good world. And anything in this world was evil. Anything having to do with trees and lakes and dirt and flowers and cows and potholes and barking dogs and snoring roommates and roundabouts and flesh and eyeballs and fingernails, all of these things were not good according to the Gnostics because they were a part of this world. Anything that was material and belonged to this world was bad, and anything that was spiritual was good. All of this stems from the Gnostics' belief that there is a good God and a bad God. Good God, bad God. The good God was the father whose name was Bethus. The immaterial spiritual being, the unknowable God, the bad God was the demiurge, the creator of this physical material world. The father was the good God. He wanted nothing to do with our world, this physical material world, because it was the demiurge who made this stinking, rotten, evil world full of people and trees and noses and big toes. So Gnosticism held to several dualism. One, a theological dualism. There's a good God and a bad God. The good God is the Father. He's spiritual. You can't know him. His name is Bethus. The bad God is the Demiurge, the creator of this physical world. They also held to a cosmological dualism, that there is a good world and a bad world. The good world was the spiritual world, what was immaterial, and the bad world world was the earth and dirt and bodies and armpits. These were the glasses or the lenses through which the Gnostics saw the world. Reality for the Gnostic was broken down into two competing values. Physical world versus spiritual world. The Gnostics believed that the demiurge The bad God who created this bad physical world was none other than Yahweh, the God of the Israelites as found in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the false God, the Gnostic would say. He's the imposter. He's the one who created this world. So he's the one who's responsible for creation. So the Gnostic would say, read Genesis 1 and 2. It's all Yahweh's fault. Yahweh is the bad God. And the good God, the Father, well, he is unknowable unless the Gnostics tell you about him. How convenient. They have all the information for salvation. So by the time you finish drinking your caramel macchiato, which is what you've been doing this whole time, the Gnostic says to you, 
If you believe in this bad God, Yahweh, also known as the Demiurge, then you are to be pitied, Christian. How sad. Pastor Irenaeus has been lying to you. But I can tell you how to know the unknowable God, the Father. I've got the secret knowledge. Remember, where does the term Gnostic come from? The Greek word knowledge, gnosis. What was this secret knowledge that the Gnostics claimed to have? It was this. Some human beings, some ugly, putrid human beings who are material beings actually have seeds of the spiritual world trapped inside their bodies. They called these trapped seeds of light as your spirit. According to the Gnostics, your spirit was just a trapped seed of light in your physical body, and it needed to be released to the spiritual world. So the Gnostics held through also to an anthropological dualism. For the Gnostics, your body was bad, but your spirit was good. Remember, they're dualistic. Material world is bad. Body is bad. Fingernails are bad. Nose hair is bad. Body, body, body is bad. And the good part of every human was the spirit, the seed of light which was trapped inside your bad body. Where did the Gnostics get their beliefs? From the Bible. Well, they loved the Bible. They had Awana programs at their church. They had Bible studies. They had fighter verses that they were memorizing. They were biblical scholars. They attended Bible-believing churches. The issue wasn't whether or not the Gnostics were reading the Bible, because they were. They knew their Bibles. The issue was, what were they understanding the Bible to say? Listen, Grace, this is always the issue. The issue for us is not whether we are reading the Bible or not, but what are we understanding the Bible to say? The Gnostics read their Bibles. They read the Old Testament. They read Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And the Gnostics would, would have read this and said, See, There's Yahweh, also known as the Demiurge. There's Yahweh raising his head in pride and arrogance, trying to assert his authority over Bethus, the father. You see, the Gnostics were Bible students. They read the Bible. The Gnostics show us that if you're creative enough, You can make the Bible sing any song you want to. If you're skillful enough, you can make the Bible prove whatever it is that you want to prove. Christians are the most creative people when it comes to interpreting the Bible. But we're also the most dangerous. We can make it say what we want it to say, who we will marry, 
if we can get a divorce, what job to take, how we treat someone when they wrong us, etc. The Gnostics were creative and used the Bible to say that all matter, everything physical is evil. The Gnostic would say, your body is evil. If you want to escape evil and pain and hurt, then get out of the physical world. Just leave this world. Escape your body. Escape your flesh and bones and blood vessels and toenails. Escape your body. Just get out of your body and you'll escape agony and pain. Salvation for the Gnostic was escaping the body, escaping anything that was physical. But the Bible clearly paints this contrasting picture. Salvation is very physical. Salvation in Christianity is very physical. Yes, there is a spiritual element But the Gnostics denied the physical element of salvation. Their interpretation of the Bible led them to a theological, a cosmological, and an anthropological dualism. Where something is good and positive and something is bad and negative. Gnostics embraced dualism. And isn't that the easy way? Just split everything in two. One side is bad one side is good. That's the easiest way to go through life. Just split everything in two. It's so much easier. White people, good. Black people, bad. Black people, good. White people, bad. Just segregate and don't strive for reconciliation between racial and cultural differences. Adults, good. Whining, loud, rambunctious children, bad. Contemporary services, good. Traditional services, bad. Or traditional services, good. Contemporary services, bad. Hymns, good. Modern worship songs, bad. Cowboy church, good. Yeehaw. Regular church, bad. Small church, good. Mega church, bad. Clean-shaven pastor in a suit with a tie? Good. Pastor with scruffy beard and jeans? Bad. Isn't it just easier to be dualistic like the Gnostics? Just separate yourself from the things that you think are bad. And isn't life easier? Or you could be Christian. And you could strive by the Holy Spirit's power to fulfill Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you walk worthy of the Lord? Be humble and don't think that your way is better than everybody else's. You be gentle. You be patient. You bear with one another in love. You walk worthily of the Lord when you're eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. 
not the unity of a homeschooling church or the unity of a cowboy church or the unity of a white church or the unity of a contemporary church. The essence of Christianity is bearing with one another and letting other people's preferences come first. Let me say that again. The essence of Christianity is bearing with one another and letting other people's preferences come first. You may have a distinct church or a distinct service, but you may very well be distinctly pagan in doing so. To be distinctly Christian is to bear with one another's preferences and not assert your own preference. I'm not against having preferences. You should have preferences. I should. We all should because God's made all of us unique. Listen, Grace would be a very, very boring church if you were all like me. If you all liked all the things that I like and dislike all the things that I dislike. This place would be boring. Imagine if everybody around here wore black all the time. How boring. How boring would it be if we all listened to 80s metal all the time? That would be so boring, wouldn't it? How boring... How boring! Did somebody say no? Bless you, brother, whoever you are. How boring would it be if we all hated mayonnaise? Actually, I wouldn't mind being dualistic in that sense. It's okay to have preferences. But when we have our preferences, we may elevate them above others and easily become dualistic. Isn't it easier to be a Gnostic Isn't it just easier to flush down the drain everything that you don't like and gather around those who are like you and gather around those who like the things that you like? Isn't it just easier to fellowship with people in a church who are just like you? Isn't it easier to form cliques and never invite someone new into your group? It is easier and it's pagan. It is not Christian. Call it whatever you want, but please don't call it Christian. What is Christian? You mix and mingle with others who are different in a church body, and you don't form cliques to the exclusion of others. And you don't resist the Spirit's conviction by making excuses for why you form and enjoy your cliques. What is Christian? You don't uh, carve out churches based on certain cultures and interests. This is my opinion. Traditional, contemporary, cowboy church, cool, hip church. The Christian thing to do is to bear with one another in love. Let that sink in. What is Christian? You don't segregate because of skin color. The church in America may not be Gnostic, but we have become a people who embrace dualism. Some things are good and some things are bad. And so as you sat across from the Gnostic at Starbucks in Lyon, France in 180 AD, and you finished drinking your venti caramel macchiato, he would lean in a little closer and say, Psst, do you like it when your body hurts? No, no, I don't like it. Do you like it when you get a migraine? No, I hate migraines. Do you like it that sometimes your body makes smelly noises? No. Do you like it when you forget to put on deodorant and you stink? No, I don't like it. Well, what you need to do, brother, 
is to escape the body. Just get out of your flesh and bones. Your body is the source of all of your problems. If you could just get out of your body, then you would be all right. Let's meet here next week, and I'll give you the secret knowledge to escape this physical, material world. How seductive, especially for the hurting, for those with chronic pain, for those suffering physically. This was good news to some people. Just escape out of your body. That was the heart of the Gnostic message. Just set my spirit free. And that's why they held to another dualism. Soteriological dualism, having to do with salvation. Salvation for the Gnostic was escaping the body and escaping this world. The Gnostic gospel was this, dying and going to heaven. The Gnostic gospel was just dying and going to heaven. Salvation for the Gnostic was simply going to heaven when you die. Just get me out of this world so I can go to heaven. It was all about going to heaven. Listen, Grace, if our gospel message is merely about going to heaven when we die, it is not good news. If our gospel message is merely about dying and going to heaven, it is not good news. The good news that Jesus preached and was handed down to us in the testimonies and the writings of the apostles and prophets in Scripture was this. Jesus lived the life that you could never live. Jesus died the death that you deserve. God raised him from the dead. Repent and trust in him. And in this life, he will begin transforming you. And one day, after you are dead, he will resurrect your body to be with him in his eternal kingdom on the new earth. If your gospel presentations are just about going to heaven when you die, then you're not sharing the whole gospel. Why? Because salvation is very physical. Redemption is very physical. The Gnostic believed that your spirit was trapped in your stinky, ugly, evil, sinful body. And the whole goal was just to get out of the body. They believed the real you was your spirit or your soul. And the whole goal of Gnosticism was to get your spirit out of your body and get it to heaven. I think we are more Gnostic and dualistic than we would like to think. What happens when we attend funerals? We become dualistic, and it often goes something like this. Brother Bob is not with us today. He is not here. He has left his body, and he is with Jesus. I'm sorry, but Brother Bob is right there in that casket. I can see him. I can touch him. You're telling me that he's not there? He's there. That body in the casket or the tomb is Brother Bob. And Jesus believes it so much 
that one day when the father decides he is going to resurrect Brother Bob, he will raise Brother Bob's body one day just as Jesus was raised. Death has torn Brother Bob apart. Death has divided Brother Bob up. Part of Brother Bob is here in the grave, in the ground, and part of Brother Bob, if he is a Christian, is with Jesus. His body is here. That's Brother Bob, at least part of him. And his spirit is with Jesus, at least part of him. And his spirit is enjoying the presence of the Lord and loving being with Jesus. It is gain, as Paul would say in Philippians 1, but there's a little bit of discontent with Brother Bob because he wants to be back in his body because his body is is part of him. His body's in the ground. His spirit is with Jesus. And those two things were made to be together. Brother Bob is not fully saved until he is resurrected. Let me say that again. Brother Bob, you, me, your loved one who has gone on to be with Jesus is not fully saved until the resurrection. Our bodies are not merely an earth suit, as some Christians say. That's pagan. That's Gnostic. That's dualism. No, God made you with all of your hair and your fingernails and your toes and your teeth and your tongues and your taste buds. Your body is not an earth suit. Your body is you. Salvation is very physical for Christians. Very, very physical. And when God began the process of salvation with you, he wasn't just interested in the spiritual. In salvation, God says, let's get physical. What does Paul say in Romans eight twenty two through 24? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What did Paul say? The redemption of our what? Our bodies, not just the salvation of your soul or the salvation of your spirit, but also the redemption of your body. In this hope, we were what? Saved. Salvation is not complete until you are resurrected and standing on the new earth. Salvation is not complete until you are resurrected in a new glorified body and your toes are touching dirt or sand or the ocean or grass. Salvation is not about going to heaven when you die because the heavenly city is coming to the earth. Salvation is not about going to heaven when you die. Salvation is about the coming together again of your spirit and your body in resurrection. Salvation is about the coming together of your dead, rotting corpse of a body with your very much alive spirit coming together again in the resurrection. Then salvation is complete. You see, the Gnostics did not understand the gospel. So they did not place a value 
on the human body. Martin Marty says in his book, A Short History of Christianity, speaking about Gnosticism, he says they were fusing a pagan ancestry with Christian deviations. Gnosticism knew many of the words, but little of the music of the song of Christian redemption. They knew many of the words, but they knew very little of the music of the song of Christian redemption. I don't want you to just know words. I want you to know the music of Christian redemption, Christian salvation. It is very physical. It is about the redemption of your spirit and the redemption of your body. More about this next week. Until then, remember that salvation is very physical. So value your body. Value the indoor plumbing that you have that's known as a stomach and your intestines. Value your nose and your eyes and your ears and your fingertips and your spleen. I know some of you don't like your nose and you don't like your ears or you don't like your curly hair that you've tried your whole life to make it straight. I know you don't like those things. But God made you the way he made you. And you should value your body. And in the resurrection, I don't have a verse that says otherwise, but I think you're getting the same nose and the same ear and the same hair. And it will be a glorious nose. And we will come up and compliment you on your nose and say, I love your nose. But we won't covet it because there will be no sin in heaven. But we will delight in the fact that you have a wonderful nose. And if that's the case, when we're back on this earth, when it's made new, how much value should we put on our noses and our bodies? Jesus believes so much in your body that he became a human being in order to save not just your spirit, but your body as well. Jesus believes so much in your humanity, in your body, that he has one now and will have one for eternity. Salvation is very, very physical. Let's pray.